This is Concepts, where two pretentious sirs quibble over ideas that explain today's world. Phil Shea and Steve Rose. My name is Phil Shea. I am writing for makeaskilljack.com, and you can find more writing by me at hittingajack.com. Steve? My name is Steve Rose, and you can find more about me at steveroseph.com, where I write about mental health and addiction. Welcome to the Concepts Podcast. Today, I'm going Welcome. to be talking about... <laughs> I'm going to be talking about naive realism. Um, so, Steve, do you know anything about this? No. Please tell me. Actually, no. He's I, lying. I know a little bit about yeah. it. I know a little bit. It seems to be kind of just a, a naive understanding of what reality is. Like, you, you think what you see in the world is objectively true uh, when it's really just your perspective of things. That's kind of my general understanding. Yeah, there's a lot of layers to this, and I ended up diving into a bunch of different people's perspectives on it. But it's it can be kind of confusing at times. So let's just jump to the guy that coined it, a psychologist. Uh, yeah. uh, I heard some frustration in that tone of like... Uh, yeah, because I listened to one guy go on for an, an hour rant about it, and I couldn't tell if he was just doing a sales pitch, but he was talking about like phenomenological stage and perception and a bunch of really abstract philosophical terms that I was just found kind of pointless uh anyway i'll jump to the the definition by uh lee ross a psychologist i believe who coined this term in the 1990s this is the belief that we quote see the world in an objective unmediated unbiased way we view it exactly as is and we believe reasonable people will always agree with us if they don't then we will have to examine what it is they don't understand or what they're misinformed about end quote so at bottom, it's All right. it's basically if we have the same understanding and same information, then we must come to the same conclusion. Right. They actually have three tenets to go over this, but... Did you follow all that? Yeah. So put in simple language, I think everyone knows someone or, or, or some people who are kind of like this, that when you talk to them, it's like, well, obviously my way of looking at it is correct. <laughs> you must be just stupid or selfish or you didn't think hard enough about this and so let or me uneducated. teach you yeah you're uneducated let me just tell you the facts and if i tell you the facts you will come to my reality yeah exactly it, 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 i think we, i think there's like a personality type that you can imagine uh, and, and, and i mean everyone is subject to this it's not just one type of person yeah i was about to stop you there and say like yeah this is probably like like most psychological phenomena it's a spectrum where some people are going to have less some people are going to have more and we definitely find it easier to notice in people who have this feature this bias dominating their their personality because if you Mm. don't agree with me then you're stupid Uh, it's a lot of people you can meet (laughs) like that (laughs) actually i have one friend who she studied history and she believed that if she could just sit down the leaders of Israel and Palestine, this was like a decade ago, she said this, hmm. uh, that if she could just sit them down and explain the history of the region, then there would be no more fighting. <laughs> I just had a laugh at the time. And then I still don't know that much. Of- she had the answer yeah. to peace in the Middle East? No way. Give her the Nobel Peace Prize. Is that the Middle East? Yeah. Israel, Palestine? Yeah. I don't know. I don't... <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's my blind spot there. A prominent section of it that has the most history of conflict right Ongoing. now. Ongoing, so. yeah, I guess. Yes. Back to naive realism, though. There are three tenets that, that come up with it, three basic facets of this, which is that they believe they see the world objectively and without bias, of course. They expect others will come to the same conclusions as long as they're exposed to the same information. 
and that they interpret it in a rational manner. Finally, last one is they assume that others who do not share the same view must be ignorant, irrational, or biased. Or as one person said, misinformed, evil, or stupid. <laughs> misinformed, evil, yeah. or stupid. <laughs> Love it. And nice. that's probably going to be the subheading of yeah. this, uh, this episode. Why other people are not evil, misinformed, or stupid. There is this joke, I think, by, I want to say, um, George Carlin, where he talked about how, right. have you ever noticed how anyone on the highway that's going faster than you is a maniac and anybody going slower than you is a moron? Something along those lines. Oh, yeah. And that's, again, the same kind of thing, because to me, it seems like the same thing we're doing in the pandemic. Anybody that's being riskier than us is crazy or foolish. And anybody that's being overly cautious or overly Mm. safe is just being paranoid. And that. Wow. I love the parallel there. Yeah, it it fits quite well. It does. Like a glove. (laughs) All things human. It's it's all about comparisons, right? Because we're always comparing to our own reference. And we think that our own reference is the place where we're anchoring everything from. Like, do you want to talk about anchoring for a sec? We can't judge things in a vacuum because we have context as human beings. We come from a particular time and place with our own experiences and our own baggage. And so everything that we perceive has some kind of place in this broader context. One way of doing this is, like a, I guess, a hierarchical sense of better or worse and, and relating to the evil, stupid, and, and bad, selfish, whatever adjectives that you describe we can't just say something is this and have a a description that is kind of floating there in this vacuous universe of space it's this in the context of that and this other thing And, and so that's how we make sense of things in the world that's how language works, is that it, there's context to every word we use. Let's talk about position. Imagine being in space and you have to say where something is. Yeah. We can't unless we have a reference to something else. Anytime we try to navigate from point A to point B, we have to know where these things are. And the only way we know where something is in relation to other things. And this works the same with concepts, which I guess is what we're kind of doing with this. That's like the whole thing of our podcast, the, the concepts podcast, because concepts are slippery. And we talked about that in, in chiplessness uh, again yeah. with social construction. Yeah, that was, I think, the same episode. But yeah, anchoring is placing something in, in a context. And people do that with like sales and stuff. Like if you're trying to barter for some, the price of something, something is like $100. If it's within reason, you'd start around $100 and then move mm-hmm. around there. But if they start at 50 or its price is 50, then it'll start hovering around that price point and it'll just be anchored to that point a thing i always kind of throw at people is saying like imagine you took a test and you got a score back of 247 is that good or bad we can't say at all because like what is that out of like 250 300 what's that mean that's that's what i said before that's the, the thing existing in a vacuum in, in the universe like 247 wow that's i don't even know how to describe it is it good or bad what's it out of yeah like if you're living on a a desert island and you're the only person alive, last human alive. It's like, are you smart? Can we really say anymore? Because there's nobody to compare it to. There's no comparison there. Right. So we always ask, well, what is it out of? And that, that provides context. Or what's the average? But then you can say, well, it's, so you can even have the context of what it's out of. And it's like, okay, I got 86%. And then as you said there, there's another layer of context because you can know the percentage, which is some context. But then there's the, the additional context of where do I fit within the whole class? And so, as you said, what's the average is the next question. Yeah, like, was it an easier or difficult test? Did I do really well on a hard test or did yeah. I do like a little bit below average on an yeah. easy test? But this is moving away from naive realism. When we talk about naive realism, we, where the problem arises, I mean, the primary one that I can see is that we seem to think that we're seeing things objectively, that we're seeing things as they are. And that like when we see a tree, we're just seeing a tree. There's no interpretation between 
the visual data hitting our eyeball. Well, first the light traveling through the air, then hitting our eyeball and then being converted into some meaning in our brain. All of that is unmediated, is just pure, unadulterated. And that's not really true. I was thinking actually even more abstractly about like, what if it was in a different medium, like it wasn't air or it was a different atmosphere or these things could also change it. And we might still think that we're seeing things objectively. Where it kind of falls apart is when we start thinking about, say, schemas or hallucinations. I've heard that people say that when it comes to psychedelics, the reason that you see things so strangely and fractally and all these different things going on is because that's your brain temporarily suspending the schemas that we have. And for those who are unfamiliar with what a schema is, a schema is a psychological framework or concept that helps you to organize the world. If we talk about a chair, a beanbag chair or a stool or a throne, these would all technically be chairs, despite them having very little in common sometimes. Like a beanbag chair doesn't even have a place to sit per se. It doesn't have any legs. Mm. But we have this idea of what it is. So when we take psychedelics, apparently that's removing that level of categorization, the way we look at the world. And that's possibly why the world seems so bizarre under those influences, because our brain is just getting raw data. So that... (laughs) with no organization to it, kind of like a lot of noise that your brain doesn't know how to sort anymore. And that's one example Mm -hmm. of how there is mediation between the raw sense data and how our brain actually digests it. Right. So it's, it's the meaning, it disrupts the meaning making process of our normal constructs for things and categories. At least on one layer. Yeah. The interpretation of data, because like our mind is still trying to grasp with Mm -hmm. other ideas, I guess I don't know. I don't even know if that's a fair interpretation, but it's an interesting one, I I thought. So then we can go further to like, say we just want to go with like normal biases. Like the thing with this is that people seem to think that they are not biased. I think (laughs) Ross Lee, I listened to an interview about him. It was interesting because he's saying people think that their current perspective is the rational, unbiased perspective. I have all the facts. Everything is good. However, when they change their mind, they come to a new realization or a new stance. They view their previous self as being misinformed or misled or naive and their current form of thought to be the rational one. So even when we're comparing ourselves to our past selves, we tend to (laughs) still see it as being um, Mm -hmm. biased and our current perspective is, is the perspective, the anchor on everything that rationality hinges on, I guess. So it's judging your former self by those same lovely adjectives that you you described before of, oh, I was just stupid back then, or I was just a a misinformed, selfish, whatever, youth or naive or whatever. That's a very interesting way of perceiving oneself and oneself in one's social context. Yeah, because it's even, you are fully aware of the context you're in, and yet you're still like, no, 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 that was silly. Why was I, obviously, I wasn't thinking clearly then. So then we can go to stuff like the media's representation of things, right? Can you think about how the media kind of influences the way we see stuff and how they can make stuff appear one way when it could be otherwise? Well, that's just a whole can of worms there. I mean, there's tons of examples of how they could do that. Just focusing on one side of an issue, the one part of the the debate, and suggesting anyone who believes otherwise is just a, a filthy liberal or, a, you know, or whatever conservative adjective you can think of. And so there's a lot of a lot of that happening. <laughs> uh, yeah, a lot of the editorializing, like anybody that there's stuff on both sides, right? Like the left will look at anybody that could be against borders, for instance, like wanting to have uh, stricter borders or some sort of requirement mm-hmm. for entry. 
to being just a dog whistle, which is actually a whole can of worms in itself, a dog whistle of just racism and hatred of anybody that's not like you. Whereas the right sees the left as being like completely detached from reality and not knowing anything about economics. And the thing is, both sides are they often don't whole cloth make up lies. They tend to just selectively focus on the stuff that supports their arguments yeah. and ignore the rest. Like a, a joke comparison I had was talking about, I think it's some um, shit, it's not arsenic, is it? I think it's arsenic. Uh, it's a, a poison that tastes like almonds. And if you were to tell somebody, hey, this tastes just like almonds, it's great. But you're just neglecting to mention that it's deadly poison. Like that's oh. kind of the similar thing. Like you're not lying, but you're giving very narrow focused information that supports oh, whatever like it is that, you want to I support like that interpretation i didn't poison him i what i said was true <laughs> but it's uh yeah yeah like i told him it tastes like almond cyanide that's it not, uh, not arsenic yes correct yeah by just focusing on that one aspect of the truth yeah you're shutting away any kind of responsibility for for that and that's in the same way that i guess news organizations can do that with their own political biases they can focus on one aspect that is technically true while leaving out the broader context exactly and the thing is like it's like um hanlon's razor i think it's called which was whatever you can don't make the mistake of attributing to malice or ill intent what could be equally covered by just incompetence or ignorance that's a difficulty because like we're again dipping into biases region because it's just so hugely impactful it seems especially today with so much misinformation going on they think that the other side i mean on my my facebook wall i put out something that was just like kind of related to the or definitely directly related to the pandemic but just showing a a flaw and i guess a, a double standard or hypocrisy and it just ended up kind of descending into just ridiculousness that doesn't make any sense. We already talked about the media, but then we can also have like useful illusions for things. So I think one of the problems with this with, with useful illusions, what I mean by that is talking about how if you see a stick in the woods, you might misinterpret that as a snake because it's better for your survival in biological evolutionary terms. If you mistake a snake for a stick that could kill you, but a stick that ends up not being a snake and you jumped back, mm. you didn't really lose anything. Yes. So being cautious is actually more useful. In line with that, different people have different temperaments and different allotments for risk. Conservatives tend to be less open to experience. When we talk about the big five personality factors, they don't like trying new things as much. And they're more wary of new right. ideas and new technologies and stuff like that, yeah. which is evident enough. Where naive realism kind of comes in is that we assume that supposing we have the same information in the same context, we're going to respond the same. Well, that completely ignores these kinds of temperaments, right? Because if I see something as like, I don't know, let's say water skiing, and I'm very highly risk averse, then I might think, oh, no, no, no that's not something I want to do. And you who could oh, be very, very much. in favor of it, let's say, which I'm actually kind of reversing our risk tolerances, <laughs> you who could be in favor could be like, no, I actually, I do. I, I am though. I know. I know you do. You could be like, no, no, no. But like, these are the facts. And I'd be like, yeah, I know. I don't want to do it. And you're like, no, you don't understand. It's not that dangerous. And I <laughs> like, it's still, despite having the same understanding could be like, no, I don't want to do that. It's not because I'm misinformed, evil or stupid. It's just that I have a different temperament for these things. Right. Supposedly. Right. Right. Yes. And so the temperament of conservatives as being more uh, averse to change, you know, we're saying in a very neutral way right now. Someone could actually receive that information in a very kind of harsh or judgmental way, or someone could receive that information as as like a a positive trait. It depends where you stand. So if I say conservatives are adverse to change, it's not a political statement. Your own interpretation of of what that means as either positive or negative could tell you something about your own beliefs. 
Do you see where I'm going with, with yes, that? Because like you could say, like, I mean, there's different yeah. framings of that same thing, right? Like you could say conservatives are, are scared of anything they don't understand. They just they hate and fear anything that's new. That's the negative interpretation. The positive interpretation is that they like to focus on what works and they don't want to break what isn't isn't broken. Or sorry, fix what isn't broken. Right. Uh, have you ever heard of Chesterton's fence? No. So it's it's kind of related to that. Chesterton's fence is about a, a fence that you come across while walking through some property. I don't really know what the context is supposed to be, but you come across this fence. The liberals are more like, this fence, what it's doing here, it shouldn't be here, let's tear it down. Whereas conservatives are more like, this fence has a purpose. It should be here because somebody mm. who thought about it put it in the effort and they, they put it here for a reason. We should leave it. Like obviously the middle ground is better because there probably was a reason for that fence to be put there. So that's the conservative side. And then the liberal side is, but does it still need to be there? Is that problems that it's alleviating still yeah. something that needs this yeah. fence to be intact or can we take it down? There's two perspectives and we don't know the truth. And so if each side assumes that they have the truth, we just start fighting over the fence and then they get the construction company to come in and tear it down. And the conservatives are like, no. And then they like, put up barricades and, and then the problem might still be there and yeah and then maybe they'll come back or yeah maybe they'll be fighting tooth and nail mm-hmm. for something that it yeah. doesn't actually need to be there anymore but they think it does because like heritage maybe I don't, I don't know that's the richness of uh, left-right dialogue of conservative liberal dialogue is to kind of figure out ways that we want to move forward in our society and in the, in the conservative perspective offers this uh, holding on to things that are valuable in the past and that could be potentially beneficial going forward, like, you know, perhaps some traditional values or some heritage pieces uh, and or, or social institutions that uh, had served some value. And so they're, they kind of bring that perspective to the table and the liberals bring the perspective of our society does not live in stagnation and there is social change and things some things are are no things are yeah things are no longer relevant or obsolete and so we do need to change and and that's the dialogue of the the left and the right very rarely often presents in in that collaborative paradigm that we're that i'm describing this is a point actually i make a lot in in my -hmm. actual life not on the podcast yet i don't think is that the stuff we see in the media is almost by definition, it's unique or it's outlandish mm-hmm. or it's extreme, right? Like it kind of has to be because if you see like a, a man like tripped and then didn't fall down, like we're not going to hear news about like non-events. And so if something was fixed, like the Y2K episode, uh, stuff, mm-hmm. we talked about this before, how Y2K people thought was like a big scam, but it actually, it was a concerted effort through various countries and agencies that averted the possible catastrophe that could have happened from it. So it wasn't a hoax. It actually was a problem that we ended up working together right. to fix. So there's that. But the other part of it, I think, is that because we only hear the loudest voices, it's kind of this life imitates yeah. art, imitates life kind of thing. The media shows the most extreme on the left and the right, mm-hmm. thus giving them more coverage. And then people who think that those are more popular will then gravitate towards those, even though in daily life, I don't really know that many insane people, frankly. Like there are some <laughs> on like Facebook, of course, but... Like in general life, most of the people I know are rational and you can have conversations with them. And as long as you, and this is a key point, as long as you avoid buzzwords, if I talk about say socialism and capitalism with some of my relatives, then immediately they'll shut down conversation and all thought kind of goes out the window. Uh, It becomes this kind of parade of buzzwords on both sides. But if I talk about like (laughs) more things like we shouldn't let corporations just pollute the environment and get away with whatever they want, they should be paying people 
appropriately for whatever the position is, and that we shouldn't have people who are working full-time jobs needing to have social services support them. Mm -hmm. These things I can usually get people on board with. So it's funny that if I talk about like welfare and all these things, like it just shuts down conversation, but reframing it makes it fine. So I, I think that's an issue in itself. So my point, I guess, is one of the things that pushed me to approach you with this podcast was that we need to have more rational conversations in the middle mm-hmm. to try to group the people that are not on the extremes and show like you're not crazy for not agreeing with yeah. wholeheartedly with either side of these groups and that these loud groups are actually the fringe minorities. Exactly. They're the loudest megaphones, as they say. And so that we get the, the Fox versus the CNN thing is kind of just blasted in our face as this is the state of politics. It's either this or yeah. that. And even talking about those things, though, if you like talk to somebody who is really in favor of Fox or really in favor of CNN and you talk to that person about how Fox or CNN individually is bad, they will immediately say, well, the other side is equally bad, which is Fox or CNN, which assumes in their mind, and this is usually I find older people who watch cable TV because <laughs> younger people don't tend to, they seem to think that it's a, a binary between yes. um, Fox or CNN or basically similar yeah. things. But it's like both of those are not great establishments and I don't really like either of them. Sometimes they get stuff right, but they often, like I said, right. yeah. lie by omission quite frequently. So I don't feel like those should be our only options. I, I, I find myself drawn to more moderate news sources, I guess, like PBS NewsHour, which I guess is like the bland, boring version of the news, and and particularly the the dialogue on Friday evenings of you know David you know David Brooks. Uh, he's a conservative, isn't he? Yeah, he's a, he's a fairly moderate conservative, and he's in dialogue. He used to be in dialogue with um, with Mark Shields, but now it's uh, Jonathan Capar. But it's just this very kind of middle of the road, bland and boring dialogue where they generally agree with each other from different perspectives. It's an example of a very rare moment of left-right dialogue that I that I do tune into on a weekly basis. <laughs> like, again, everything in psychology is kind of, a, it's what's called a standard distribution, like a bell curve, basically, where it's like low on the tails mm-hmm. and the top and the bottom, and then a huge chunk around the 50% mark. The people that we see the most in the media are probably like the 10% on the top mm-hmm. and the bottom there, to a degree, because the right wants to make the left look stupid, and the left, likewise, wants to make the right look stupid. But the people I talk to, generally, I can get them to come around and we can debate things. And as long as it's in good faith, that's great. The thing is, I guess, where things fall apart is like the alt-right, and I'm sure the left is probably going to start mimicking it soon if it hasn't already, has this interesting approach to things where they will do the just asking questions routine where they're trying to make you look stupid despite not actually taking a stance themselves. Their goal is to, to mock the side they are opposing and to seem like they're actually having genuine inquiry, but they're not. It's just purely to kind of disparage the side that they're asking questions about. Oh, and you right. see it kind of all the time right now. Like, again, we talked before about how comparing self-driving cars to having any deaths is bad. But that's comparing it to like no, no deaths versus compared mm-hmm. to human driver deaths. And similarly, when we talk about, say, the pandemic right now, people make a lot of false comparisons like that as well. And I guess the flaw I see in my more conservative friends sometimes is that they think maintaining the status quo, maintaining whatever approach we currently have, has no risk or the same risk as always. And like we just mentioned not long ago now, if the environment has changed then and we haven't updated our approach to it, then that doesn't mean that the risks haven't changed. It just means that we may be ignorant of the risks that we're taking. Yes. Yes. So there's risk in either way of staying the same. There's risk and change. There's risk. I guess another layer I wanted to talk about, I guess where we talk, I kind of briefly touched on it with the stick of the snake expectations, expectations shaping our perception is another layer in which we are having this 
extra <laughs> level of interpretation. If I give you a can of Coke and you took a, a drink from it and it was flat and a little bit thick and it wasn't sweet, you'd probably be like, oh, what the hell is this? I think you're a bad host. <laughs> <laughs> I would be a bad host because I'd be... And this joke is I would be giving you a can of Coke filled with milk. Imagine drinking milk out of a can of Coke, expecting Coke. It'd be just, you'd, you might vomit. So you gave me a, a, a can and it's already opened, but you had already, you'd filled it with milk and I didn't look at it carefully enough and I go take a sip and I'm like, Ugh, what, <laughs> what's going on? So I expected Coke, but I got milk and, and milk doesn't taste bad, but it's that expectation that changes yeah. the reality. Got it. So another level, and that was just a, a funny thing that I used to joke about if you want to do like a, a relatively harmless prank. So a case study of how naive realism can really run us astray, and this is kind of maybe confirmation bias uh, along the lines too, is a case of a guy named, and I'm probably going to say his name wrong, Hiro Onada, which is a Japanese soldier from World War II. If anybody's watched Archer season six, episode one, he comes across a character mm -hmm. that's based off of this man. He was a real man. He spent 29 years, 29, in the Philippines living as a guerrilla soldier because his plane went down, I believe, nearby, and he managed to make it to the island. And for 29 years, he believed the war was still going on. Whoa. They knew he was there and they kept sending pamphlets and letters from loved ones and whatever they could to try to get him to know that the war, the war is over. You don't have to keep killing cows and like doing all these other things. Like he just getting what he needed and staying off people's radar other than like he would be killing a cow to get the meat or something from it and disappearing. The only thing that stopped him from doing this, continuing to fight this non-existent war was by sending his now his commanding officer, who is now an elderly bookseller in Japan to the Island and getting him to tell him man to man, Hey, the war is done. It's been done for like 20 wow. years now, almost basically every bit of information this guy got, he assumed was just a propaganda effort. And because he believed that he was seeing everything neutrally, then he just wouldn't buy any of it. No way. Wow. i never heard of that case. Yeah. It's, uh, interesting. it's an interesting one for sure. So think about how conflict resolution ends up going with naive realism. How do you think that most people approach an opposing side? With strength and vigor. What, what kind of intent? Well, with strength and vigor. No, with the intent of, uh, I know in the case of the Israel-Palestine conflict, I heard a talk by a, a person that was doing diplomacy in the region, not not your friend, uh, who had the, the solution. Yeah. But I guess in, in a similar vein, that each side does want to come to the table and have discussions with the other side. They legitimately do all the time. Yep. But what's the purpose there? And the purpose is often that they will always that if they can get the other side to the table and tell them the facts, then the other side would understand they would be cured of their naivete. And so that would resolve it. Nobody wants to come to the table asking, I want to learn more about how I might be wrong and learn about the other side. <laughs> Yeah, I must yeah. be missing facts. Yeah. My reasoning is not quite straight and I need somebody to tell yeah. me how to, yeah. no, we always go in as yeah. teacher trying to like yes. talk down to the other side a lot of times. Well, not always. Generally we do. Yes. And in, in, in these kind of high stakes negotiating diplomacy situations, it's, it does seem to be, the guy said in no time in, in my whatever long career of doing diplomacy, did one side ever want to figure out how they were wrong? <laughs> Yeah, for sure. It reminds me of something called inoculation theory, which inoculation theory is, yeah, I'm actually going to quote something from a writer is a self-classified <laughs> rationalist Oh yes, uh, called Slate Star Codex. Yeah, yeah, you're familiar. So he says, quote, inoculation is when you use a weak pathogen like cowpox to build immunity against a stronger pathogen like smallpox. The inoculation effect in psychology is when a person, upon being presented with several weak arguments against a proposition, 
becomes immune to stronger arguments against the same position, end quote. I think I've mentioned this before. Say you watch Fox and you think you know what's going on on the left or what left people are actually thinking. You will believe you have... Because you're getting a bunch of weak arguments. Yeah, exactly. You'll believe that you've got mm. the whole picture and you understand it fully, and that the other side is just a bunch of irrational morons. And again, that goes back to this. And so if you're presented with a strong argument, now you're immune from it. And so you're, you're like, oh, no, no, I already thought about that. But it's the weak arguments you'd already made the decision on. Is that kind of it? Yeah, you'll, you'll hear something silly that's really weak and irrational. And like I think we talked about like toxic masculinity, where you think that all men are toxic. And that's the position you've heard, which then obviously on the face of it sounds right. ridiculous. And so you'll be inoculated by that when somebody comes up and brings up toxic masculinity in any context, unless they fully explain it in a way that is not so stupid. And even then, you might not listen to them. Frankly, we are animals like anything else, and we are trying to save energy where we can. Mm -hmm. And that's the whole thing about what I was talking about, schemas and other things along those lines. We're categorizing things as soon as they come across our radar. It says, okay, it's got four legs and it barks. Okay, that's a dog. But like, it might not be a dog. It could be like a coyote or something. So if you've presented with that, the, the weak version, yeah, you, you hear the word again, you're like, I don't need the energy to focus on that. I already thought about it. Exactly. You don't, you don't actually no. listen to what the words they're saying are. And this is a problem I find mm-hmm. with more nuanced arguments because that's I, I try to hear both sides, obviously, and I make more nuanced arguments, but people often don't hear the words that I'm saying. They hear the first few words and then because of me being a a white guy or whatever the position is, if it's relevant, they might say, oh, you blah, blah, blah. And like they'll dispel anything I said or just call me names. And I'm like, that's not what did you hear me say? What did you think I said? And I'll let you know whether that's accurate or not, because often it's not (laughs) because if somebody suddenly starts just shooting me down or not letting me finish the point which I guess um, all of us can be kind of uh, guilty of at times, then I kind of have to like backtrack and be like, wait, 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 wait. Let, let's, let's recap. What did you right. think I just said? There's a quote I think I should probably throw out there a bit more than usual. Um, it's summarized in the first sentence. The whole thing is worth listening to, which is John Stuart Mill. He, I think he came up with uh, utilitarianism, humanitarianism. I can't remember if it was a philosophical stance, but he was a, a political and philosophical thinker a while ago, like 100 or 200 years ago. So he said, quote, he who knows only his side of the case knows little of that. That's the part that I want to, I'm going to probably repeat in more episodes in the future, but I'm going to continue. Love it. His reasons may be good and no one may be able to refute them, but he is equally unable to refute the reasons of the opposite side. If he does not so much as know what they are, he has no ground for preferring either opinion, nor is it enough that he should hear the opinions of adversaries from his own teachers presented as they state them and accompanied by what they offer as refutations. He must be able to hear them from persons who actually believe them. He must know them in their most plausible and persuasive forms, end quote. Love it. That's a really great quote. And the beginning of it, the first phrase is a nice way to kind of encapsulate all of that. Can you just say the, the, the tagline again? He who knows only his side of the case knows little of that. Ooh, yeah. If you only know your side of the argument, you don't know your argument very well. And I guess that's what drew me to listening to actual conservative AM radio back in uh, fourth year university while I was driving to and from school. <laughs> you remember that? Phase? Yeah, I remember that. I was a little bit worried at the time thinking that maybe you'd gone off the deep <laughs> no, end. I, it's just, <laughs> but it's actually, looking back at you, it's probably a good thing. You have to, to know what you're up against because obviously I held quite the opposite beliefs and particularly at the time it was it was quite fervently the opposite and had a blog called atheist spirituality so i was was listening to the (laughs) other side of it to get to know what you're arguing against do you remember any like takeaways you had from that like what revelations you'd learned through that endeavor because a lot of people would think that's just a waste of time like i already know i don't believe it why would Mm -hmm. i bother wasting time looking into something that i don't believe what did you find was it like an eye-opening experience Uh, yeah there's a certain logic to it 
Like if you actually buy into these, some of the premises, it, it can kind of give you a sense of comfort and, and stability and a sense you can make sense of tradition, the world and your place in it. And there was something to it. I didn't buy into the fundamental assumptions, so it didn't work for me personally, but I can see how someone would understand that. And so it's the ability to put yourself in someone else's shoes. And then therefore, when you go into a conversation with someone like that, you don't come at it as a naive realist who thinks you just need to teach them the facts, <laughs> but uh, you actually can know where they're at and meet them where they're at. Right. In meeting them where they're at, you can kind of walk them down your understanding of the situation and they might go along for the walk more readily if you if you do it from that perspective. And they may go a few steps with you and then they'll kind of say, well, I'm only comfortable going this far or they might go a little further. But until you meet them where they're at, they're not going anywhere. Yeah, like my more... Conservative, I usually classify them as like um, mm. moderate conservatives because like hardline conservatives probably are, I actually don't know that many of them. But when I talk to them, usually you'll talk about things and even though they might identify as a conservative and I identify as being on the left to some degree, um, however little that may be. It's interesting because they will end up, again, if you avoid buzzwords, they'll end up agreeing with you on a lot of things, especially if you avoid the buzzwords of like the certain easy heuristics, like saying like BLM or um, or people that say like all lives matter. Like if you want to talk about toxic masculinity, don't use the term pretty much <laughs> to start at least. Yeah, exactly. You have to avoid using these words so you don't set off any tripwires. Don't use the buzzwords. <laughs> yeah, it's to the tripwire. I like that metaphor. So then you don't get like a claymore mind in your face, but... What I find is usually we'll have a lot more agreement than disagreement, and then you'll find a fine tip where people will be like, nah, I'm not for that. And again, I guess we have to kind of look at the political compass, which is, uh, for all its flaws, I think the uh, authoritarian, libertarian, up-down axis is useful, and then the left-right axis just being purely economics, left being mm -hmm. more collectivist, more socialist, communist, and the right being more pure capitalism. I think that that can help you to figure out mm -hmm. where somebody's coming from, because a lot of people kind of... Uh, coalesce around a certain point they don't even know it themselves because sometimes you'll talk to them and it won't seem coherent because they may not actually have a coherent position again where i was talking about with we try to use these heuristics we don't we try not to engage with thought unless we need to yeah you and i we like thinking and picking apart arguments and thinking about them yeah. but a lot of people don't want to waste time doing that they have other things that they find is a better use of their energy you're suggesting that most people don't have a fully formed coherent theory of reality or politics oh right well i mean a lot of people don't study yeah. politics as much of a hobby horse as no. we do to some degree and that's okay yeah no that's fine i mean i think that we shouldn't have to look at politics all the time and i know that that's a position that the left says, um, and I agree to some degree, that if you don't want to talk about politics, you don't want to think about politics, then that means probably the system is already working for you and you don't need mm -hmm. to think about it. But there are groups that it's not working for and they need yeah. to think about these things all the time. I would like to be able to get to a place where we don't have to constantly be yeah. talking about politics all the time and losing friends over yeah. uh, political debates. That'd be yeah, great. That means everything's working. Yeah, that would mean everything is working. But <laughs> and, and so what I think you're trying to say underneath the, the people don't necessarily have that the airtight, coherent, fully thought out logic of their position. And so I guess my approach to this would be listening to what they're saying without really saying it, uh, what their underlying uh, needs and desires and wants and fears are. They're, they're very emotional. And, and these are the things that, that really that yes. uh, drive us, that motivate us, and, and that cause us to hold certain uh, political 
uh, thoughts and and uh, in leaning leanings and, yeah. and schools of thought and uh, so there's like a, a distinction between the very rational level uh, which we're we're speaking and then the emotional level of what are they saying without necessarily saying it? Right. And I, I did pick up where I was going with that. <laughs> where I was going with that was when you talk to people about this and they have some stance that doesn't coalesce very well, doesn't mesh with the rest of the things they're saying. I think it's interesting to take a look at that. And again, you're not doing this to make them look stupid. No. You're not doing this to say that they're wrong or to show them that they're wrong because they could be right. The thing is, you have to ask them, how do they get from these set of facts to the conclusion that they're saying? And that can be enough to sometimes, if it is a bad stance, to get people to, to drop a stance. Like that someone says, oh no, it's doomsday. If we do X, then it'll lead to doomsday Y. And you're like, okay, well, let, let's suppose X happens. What are the steps that you see from here to there? Like there's a bunch of steps. Like it's not just like, we let gay marriage happen and then the people are going to be marrying dogs. What are the steps? Because that was an argument. Just That's not my oh, argument. Wow. That is other people's. Okay. But what are the steps from gay marriage to marrying animals? Like, what is the next step in the path? And what is the one after that? And what is mm-hmm. the one after that? That you think rational people in this society we have would push for this change because it probably isn't reasonable or rational for it to happen. A lot of time it's like economic theories as well. People will say, if we give people UBI, then the whole thing's going to fall apart. Universal basic income was apparently pushed by conservatives some time ago. I think it was Milton Friedman era, which is like back in Reagan's time. And he was pushing for it because they wanted to have it so that they could cut all welfare, basically, which looks at your situation and gives you money depending on what your needs are. So like a single mother with multiple kids and one of them being special needs probably needs more money than low-income family that has only one kid and two parents. If we were to switch to UBI and completely scrap the welfare situations we've got going on, then that would end up giving those two groups I just mentioned the exact same amount of money. And then they kind of like clap their hands of it and it's done. That I think was an interesting point because when people say, are you for or against UBI? I think again, like most things, the devil's in the details. We need to figure out what do you mean by UBI? What are we cutting? What are we keeping? Um, How are we transitioning? No, I really like that. You're meeting them where they're at on, on a rational level. Like, okay, this is your argument. Walk me through where, how we get from this to that. And I think that's a, a nice way to do it. And the way I was referring to was kind of more that emotional level of like, like, uh, I guess naming their, their fears and desires and, and kind of those underlying things to develop rapport and common ground because underneath all of this, we all kind of want the same things. And then coming back to once you got that common ground, kind of where you're at with that, uh, meeting them where they are in terms of their ideas about how we get there. And then kind of walking that uh, that logical path afterward. Yeah. There was one guy I was listening to. I can't remember who it was. Um, I've been listening to a lot of Coleman Hughes mm. um, podcast, which some people say he's conservative. He seems mm. more moderate and rational to me. So he's been very interesting to listen to. I recommend his podcast, Conversations with Coleman. But he had a guy on there that basically said, once you start arguing, if you're debating with somebody, as soon as you get into facts, that's when things fall apart. I guess they're talking about speaking experientially, speaking person to person, using metaphors and yes. examples but not going into like nitty gritty yes. graphs and numbers because then people just shut off. Often, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, for sure. I think that's that's why I was kind of emphasizing that side of it quite a bit, yeah. I think both of our approaches in combination would be oh, of course. best because like the, the rational one, of course, they might just say like, ah, I don't know. But like if they're smart and they are able to think through these things, they will probably start actually realizing that maybe they don't fully have the whole picture there. Maybe 
we're not trying to tell somebody to come around to our side. We have to be open to coming over to their side as well, supposing it makes sense. That's it. So there's a vulnerability in this. So you can't just uh, meet someone where they're at expecting they're going to go in your direction. They don't have their own direction because they do too. And you have to be willing to maybe even walk in their direction a little bit. And maybe yours kind of covers over in weeds and you you abandon it because maybe it's just not something you agree with anymore. And that's okay too. But there is that kind of openness and vulnerability in these discussions. It's difficult because like sometimes people can be very stubborn, but right. But other times it can just be completely just bad faith arguments and they, they will never come around and they're trying to just move you over. Like there's something called the, um, the ratchet effect, which is if you think about a ratchet, it's something that can freely spin in one direction. But if you turn it the opposite direction, it won't allow it to spin in that way. Right. You can keep tightening a bolt by just continually moving the same gesture up and down on your, your arm. Basically, it's talking about how conservatives are. They're the crank, I think, that that twists it towards the right. And then the left tends to, at least when in power, the people that are supposedly left tend to not actually undo the change. They tend to like, just keep the system as it is. So it's kind of a kind of paradox, actually, because as we were just saying, like left people are, tend to be more progressive and want to move things forward. And the conservatives want to keep things the same. In politics, it seems that conservatives continue to move it toward a more conservative agenda. And the left seems to just kind of be a stopper that stops it from progressing further, but doesn't actually undo the changes. An example of this, I believe, was Trump changed the, uh, I think, corporate taxes. I don't remember exactly which tax, but he moved a tax from 31% down to 20%. So it was a pretty significant cut in that tax. And then when Biden went in and, uh, quote unquote, undid it, he moved it to 25 to 28%. So it still moved in the conservative direction, cutting the tax after Biden was done by, like, I guess, 6 to 8%, percent, mm-hmm. something like that. So it still moved in the one direction despite being quote-unquote undone. Right. So it's an interesting kind of paradox there. Yeah, each side needs a vision of what they want, not just as a stopper of the other side type of thing. Well, one thing I've actually had to try to grapple with when thinking about this in more detail is like, how do we deal with bad actors? How do we know who's just trying to just ask questions and be a little shit disturber? How do we identify somebody as being good faith versus bad faith? And I honestly don't have a great answer for that other than trying to explore these things. Will they ever concede that you made a good point? I guess would be one question. Are they always just being kind of like snide and flippant and and only talking to you in front of an audience? Then perhaps that's another example. Because like on Facebook, when you're discussing with people, you have to think about whether I think I was talking to you about this about how there's like three classifications. I was saying like who are we talking to? Like there's one person that's going to be persuadable and kind of go back and forth. You can have an open discussion. There's one person who's just going to further their agenda, and this is again in a closed thing where it's just two people talking. And then finally, there's people talking in front of an audience where it's speaking to the audience, not to the other person. In public, people are less likely to change their minds. With an audience, people are less likely to say they're wrong or back down. Yeah, that's a a good way to think about and classifying these different types of discussions. Yeah, so you have to figure out whether the discussion's even worth having, I suppose. Worth having, yeah. And our discussion has been worth having. Great. Well, I hope it is to the audience as well. One final point I wanted to say before a closing quote, a couple of them, I guess was that for critical thinking, it seems to be kind of optional. When it came to thinking critically about stuff, people were very critical when it came to any argument coming from the other side. But when it was their own side, they shut off critical thinking and just accepted it and just said, yes, great. Even though there could be contradictions in both, there probably was contradictions in both. This was in a psychology experiment that I have not seen in a long time. But they showed them an argument either in favor of or against uh, capital punishment. So killing somebody as a result of whatever crimes and whether it was effective or not. And if you believed in capital punishments and you were given an argument against it, then you were hypercritical and you were going to pick it apart and find all the flaws. 
But if it was in favor of it, then you would just let that pass and vice versa. It seems like people want to think that this is an education issue. Again, it's not that they're uneducated. They might just have different calibrations for these things. We find that, say, climate change, I think there was another study finding that it didn't matter how educated you were or how much science you understood to determine which side on the political or sorry, which side of climate change, whether it was real or not or whatever, where you stood on that. The main point that actually changed it was where you stood politically and what your political tribe was saying. So if the people that were the most scientifically informed that considered themselves Republicans, they actually were even more against the idea that climate change was real. So it's not that these people are stupid. It's just that they are focusing on different factors or they're finding ways to fool themselves just as we are fooling ourselves. We're all just fooling ourselves. (laughs) To a degree, yeah. Like I guess like philosophical skeptics may have some points there and I think it can be confusing. But I think, again, like you said, we all kind of want the same things and we want the betterment of society and the flourishing of everybody. It's just that we disagree on how to get there. Yeah, that's politics. Yeah, basically. Lee Ross, he had a problem with walking in people's shoes or putting on their glasses to see from their perspective. So he was saying that even if we walk in somebody else's shoes, we will still come back to our own standing because we see it as the standing. He was saying that we need to basically go and approach people with authenticity, as you said, with with a, a kind of level of vulnerability and work from that. Like, I think there was a quote from Dale Carnegie that said, the only way to get somebody to act trustworthy is to treat them as if they already are trustworthy. And again, I have to point out this flaw that people seem to interpret this as that doesn't mean treating somebody as if they're trustworthy will make them trustworthy. It's just that if you treat somebody with distrust, they're more likely to act as though you don't trust them and they won't act in as good a faith. So the only way to get somebody to act genuinely with you is you to treat them with respect. This reminds me of Stephen Covey's quote, seek first to understand, then to be understood. Yes. The author of um, however many steps. Seven. Seven habits of highly effective people. (laughs) I forget the name of that. I think that this actually becomes even more poisonous when it comes to dog whistling and that that's an issue. But the quote I wanted to finish with with Abraham Lincoln was, quote, I don't like that man. I must get to know him better. Love it. Perfect ending to this. Yeah. So thanks for tuning in. Again, we got Discord. We got other things. We have some guests coming on. So if you know anybody that you want to hear from or you think we can approach, then uh, we'll do it. So thanks for showing up and hope to see you next time. Doing hardcore drugs. Mad tweaked before the episode.